Occupy a Job on Wall Street is an autobiographical novel about New York City in the aughts, centering around a protagonist who was mentored by three sociopaths. Episode 57, Hardball. Like many New Yorkers, I spend a lot of time walking through Central Park. I'm normally rushing from one place to another, but always try to take a moment to slow down, take a deep breath, and enjoy the surroundings. This is particularly true when I'm near my friend Goose's memorial, as I've discussed in prior episodes. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the park on a stunningly clear day, and the shadow of a building south of me was stark upon the ground. Some of these new condos are so narrow, and the winter days are becoming so short that you can literally see the shadow moving across the ground like a wraith. The sight reminded me of Emerson's observation that an institution is the lengthened shadow of one man. If you live here... Many such shadows in your path are those of a real estate magnate named Gary Barnett. He might be the most powerful New Yorker you've never heard of. Barnett is currently building the Nordstrom Tower, which is the beautiful blue building on 57th Street, said to be the tallest residential structure in the world. But the thing about 57th Street, known as Billionaire's Row, is it's not Central Park South. You might ask yourself, what does it matter what's between you and the park if the condos in your building start on the 32nd floor and there's a hundred stories above that? Well, it matters if someone has plans to construct something huge right in front of you. The building in between the Nordstrom Tower and Central Park was rent-stabilized. If you own a rent-stabilized apartment, you have two options for forcing the residents to leave. Firstly, if you plan to use it as a primary residence, you can evict the tenants. The second way you can throw someone out is if you plan to demolish the building. The owner, Vernado, had recently decided to go down the second path, and when Barnett heard about this, well, as you can imagine, he wasn't happy. His company, Extel, was going to end up spending $3 billion on the Nordstrom Tower, and Vernado was going to swoop in and take over his view. I can't say I know anyone in the vicinity when he discovered Vernado's plans, but I think it's safe to assume the next words out of his mouth were, fuck that. So Vernado is busy either buying out tenants or evicting them, no doubt giggling to themselves about how they plan to raise a giant phallus for Bennett to stare at all day while his anchor tenant Nordstrom falls apart because no one shops anymore. Now, as a rule of thumb, if you're lucky enough to be in a rent-stabilized apartment, you can hold the owner up for four or five years in court before the sheriff arrives to put your stuff in a box. So usually the company will just come to some settlement with you and everyone walks away happy. What Bennett knew, and Vernado wasn't smart enough to counter, was that these agreements don't apply to commercial leases, only to residential ones. At the bottom of the Vernado building was a parking garage with a 15-year unbreakable lease. Barnett offered to buy out the lease, and when the garage refused, he just bought the entire parking company, saving his view of Central Park and totally screwing Vernado over. This is how you play hardball. Every time I look over at the Nordstrom Tower and Barnett's vanquished competitor at 220 Central Park South, it reminds me of two other examples of how the big boys play contact sports in New York. The first anecdote is one I should write about. It's how Ken Langone and Dick Grasso screwed over Elliot Spitzer. Ken Langone, of course, founded Home Depot. Dick Grasso was a lesser figure in more ways than one. He was the psychotic dwarf who ran the New York Stock Exchange and shamefully accepted a $5 million bonus for opening it up again four days after 9-11. The story of how they took then-Attorney General Elliot Spitzer to the woodshed is a good one. But it's not the one I'm going to write about, because it doesn't step on any new toes. And after all, we're playing hardball here. Instead, 
let's talk about the night Trump was elected. This was a bit of a shock to the markets, of course, and it was a shock to one of the most legendary investors on the planet, George Soros. George sees this as a bit of a Brexit-type situation, and he's discussing it with his head trader, who was a Svengali-type character in the drama at the time. Now, the right thing to do in a fluid situation like this is to sleep on it, to look at it with fresh eyes in the morning. But instead, the two of them are obsessively discussing the election on their cell phones, and in an ugly precursor the following years, they get themselves unnecessarily worked up over Trump. Eventually, George gives his head trader an order to sell billions of S&P futures into the market. That's billions, with a B. When the overnight desk at the time gets this order, they tell the head trader that what George wants to do is impossible. It's after midnight. The markets just can't take that sort of supply. The head trader is adamant. He says, I didn't ask your opinion. I'm giving you an order. So the trader starts selling into the market. Now, one thing to know about the futures business is the liquidity depends on other markets that are correlated with it. For instance, if you want to sell a billion S&P at 10 a.m., well, no problem. Your counterparties can hedge themselves by selling the underlying stocks or the NASDAQ or even European features. But at 1 a.m., nothing like that is available. So the markets take a shit. Carl Icahn, meanwhile, takes a minute out of partying with Trump and his feral family to see the markets in a waterfall formation and jumps in to buy billions of S&P. The tape rallies and Soros loses $1.3 billion. It was like George took a dump truck full of $100 bills and just drove them around to Carl's place. And that's hardball. There's an interesting postscript to this story. In April of this year, it was reported that Icon sold his $500 million stake in Lyft to Soros before the IPO launched. Now, the Lyft IPO fell over 20% before the lockup on those shares expired, so Icon wins again, right? Not so. My understanding is the powers that be at Soros took that stake at a discount and had the banks lend the entire thing back to them so Soros could sell short the stock and lock in a guaranteed profit. In doing so, their selling pressure would have been one of the reasons the IPO traded quickly below the offering price. So they make money on their long side, and they make money by shorting it in the aftermarket. Was this legal? Well, it's a bit of a gray area. But yeah... That's how you play hardball. Episode 58 of Occupy a Job on Wall Street will be out soon.